Cornucopia Radio presents... Some true crime stories might start this way. But the truth is, it's very rare. It's highly unlikely it will happen to you or anyone else you know. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. You're walking alone. You're outside listening to the birds and the breeze through the trees. When you spot something in the bushes... It looks like a person, but you have to be sure. Anxiously, you move closer, hoping and praying you're wrong. But you're not. You've discovered a dead body, and it's been dead a long time. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years, and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and look into cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is a murder investigation in 1983, when a decomposing body was discovered in a wooded area in Exeter, UK. Well, welcome back to the show and thanks for listening to us. We're really pleased that in such a short space of time we've managed to build up some dedicated listeners and that you're here with us as we talk about police procedures behind all of the cases that we review, the theory and the practice, and then we go on to interview officers and individuals involved in each of those cases. We're starting this episode in the same way and with the same information that the police at the time would have had. All we know is that a dead body has been found by a member of the public. Over the next three episodes, much more information will be uncovered and we'll both find out and talk directly to many of the people involved, learning alongside you, the reasons that this body came to be discovered on this day in 1983. So the thing is, John, then, where do you start with something like this, a body being discovered? It's a question we're often asked, isn't it? The uh, general public, of course, don't see what goes on behind the scenes and until it sort of reaches the media, if it's a undetected murder at that time, there's many, many varied ways how the police are informed, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, if you get the call into uh, the operations room or the police station that a body's been found, your first thing is that it's suspicious, but it might not be, might it? People do collapse and die. Well, as we we know as police officers, people die, sadly, every day of the week in strange circumstances that aren't murder victims. They could have had a heart attack, they could have fallen and injured themselves, but the prime object is to preserve life and everybody should do everything and do to try and establish that they, if they are uh, not breathing to, to maintain their airway until help comes. So everybody that's found doesn't necessarily mean it's been the victim of crime. And of course, subsequently, either at the scene or shortly after, if it is established it's a criminal act, then that's when the police investigation, the murder investigation starts. 
so really what we're saying is that everything everybody that is is found would be treated as suspicious until we know otherwise yes because as we'll come on to talk about forensics and preservation of the scenes are paramount importance in a murder investigation and talking about murder investigations and going back to this case that we're now reviewing we managed to track down the senior investigating officer in that investigation and you interviewed him, John. This morning we're uh, very grateful to a retired senior police officer from the Devon and Cornwall Police, uh, Detective Superintendent Brian Rundle, who, as he will tell us no doubt, I think was a policeman all his life and born in Devon. Is that right, Brian? Yes, that's right, yes. My father was a policeman, uh... My brother was a policeman. I've got four uncles that were policemen. So, yes, uh, steeped in the history of policing. Oh, that's nice to know, isn't it? That uh, And mm. what a tradition. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Yep, there was a, a very strange uh, murder, which was Saturday the 3rd of September 1983. An event took place around the extra area, which you then became the senior police officer investigating that case, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yes. And what actually had, had triggered this investigation? What what had been found? Well, we, we had a call uh, from a, a man who'd gone to relieve himself in a little uh, car park uh, uh, near Holden Racecourse uh, and uh, come across a, a body led to the investigation being set up. So am I right in thinking that prior to your involvement, uh, this call would have been made to the local police reporting what this gentleman thought was a body and then uniform officers attended and it sort of escalated from there. That's right, yes, yeah, initial search and uh, uh, and then Jeff Henthorne was very quickly on the scene as well. Yeah, he's your was your deputy then, wasn't he? He Detective? was at that time, yes. Yes, and a result of his CID input, it was a murder. Or, yes, Uh and then you were called in to... That's right, to set up the, the incident room and to begin the, the inquiry. The general procedure is the same for most suspicious deaths, isn't it? That, that you would call in a pathologist to examine the body in situ. Is that what took place? Yes, that's right, yes. Uh, until we've had the report from the pathologist, then uh, we're, we're not certain that we're dealing with a murder rather than a suspicious body. And at what stage did the unusual elements of this case come to light? Well, it, it, it came to light quite quickly at that time because uh, when the pathologist arrived and uh, took his first look at the body, uh, he then found that, in fact, the head was missing. And had he determined what sex and age, etc.? A female. Uh, he couldn't determine whether it was a, a, an adult or a child at that time because of the position that the body was in. And did you attend the scene, Brian? Uh, yes, I did, yeah. Um, and uh, having done that, and uh, obviously we then knew that we were dealing with a murder, uh, the, the priority then was to set up the incident room uh, and to get the necessary manpower arranged to start making inquiries. And having found the body in sort of a secluded area, I, I would have thought your heart sank thinking, my God... We're, we're we're up against this one. Yes, uh, that's quite true um, because we we got absolutely no idea uh, where we were going to start with that. Um, the the body has obviously been placed there at some stage, 
but had been kept somewhere else for certain sure because it was in a quite an advanced state of decomposition. Uh, and the, the two items of clothing that eventually were found on the body were uh, stained with body fluids and unrecognisable. And you mentioned that uh, after initial sort of visit to the scene and, and the, the sort of uh, seriousness of the events unfolding, you set up an incident room, which which could you just give us a, a, a picture of what that is for the people who are listening, never heard of that? Yeah, um, so uh, a number of police officers would be called in on the inquiry and that would be controlled through the incident room. Um, there would be teams carrying out various work, doing house to house if there was, was such a thing, inquiries at the race course, um, inquiries uh, of missing persons, and it would then develop from there on. Going back to then, uh, I'm thinking back myself because I was a police officer then, it was just at the sort of after the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry when computerisation was coming into the force. Had you got that? No, we hadn't at that time, no. And and it was done the traditional way then in... in uh, pencil and paper, yeah. Pencil and paper and index cards. <laughs> Sally right. has worked yeah. on those. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes, the old-fashioned way. That's right. How many man-hours do you think you, you, you spent on the investigation? Well, we, we would have had, um, initially anyway, uh, upwards of 80 police officers. And um, that was usual um, that, that we uh, did here in the, the West Country. Um, so uh, officers would be drawn from throughout the Constabulary area uh, and from the regional crime squad um, to deal with the, the inquiry. To, to anybody listening to this, Brian, people that haven't got a police background, they must be thinking that you go to work on, on this day, you're faced with um, a, he- a headless corpse out in a, a secluded spot, and where on earth do you start? What, well, are, the, what right. are the first inquiries you make? Well, the first inquiries, obviously, is missing persons um, to see if we can... Uh, determine whether anybody who might have possibly been similar to the uh, the, the body um, were found um, with the race course, because it uh, may just have been somebody who'd attended a, a race meeting or something thereby, um, and just try and eliminate those kinds of things. Uh, there's very little housing around that area, so uh, house to house wasn't going to reveal an awful lot anyway. So the first stage would be to have the body examined by a home office pathologist. Then for a post-mortem to be carried out. And as a result of the post-mortem initially, what was the the findings of the cause of death? Well, the, the findings of death um, was not strictly confirmed at that time because we didn't have the head, um, but there may have been some uh, gunshot wound as well um, to the body. Uh, but uh, certainly um, we were looking for something that had happened quite a long time previously, which is not not a good omen as far as police inquiries are concerned. We sort of work on the... We work on the principle, really, that if you've not cleared it in three days, you won't clear it in ten. And if you haven't cleared it after that, you're out for the the long haul. Yes, I've heard that many times, and Mm. and murder inquiries can go on for months, years even, can't they? That's right, yeah. And uh, the last thing anybody wants is is that to happen because it it takes its toll on all the staff and yes, morale, does. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, so you know, then uh, once that 
the postmortem had been carried out as far as it could be, um, because we still hadn't found the head, of course. So we then uh, got um, uniformed teams in to search the the area around where the body was found, sort of thinking that it might well have been uh, carried away by uh, some animal or other uh, and left further down over the hill. Yes, so that would be a mammoth task in its day. Well, it was, yes, because it was all scrubland, so really it had to be cleared with sort of uh, gardening tools and that kind of thing. And was anything found at the the scene where the body was after it had been removed when you'd done an examination? Yes, there was. Um, At the same time, uh, once the body had been removed, all the soil that was in uh, and around the body um, was dug up and uh, taken to uh, our local police station at Heavitry Road. Uh, where a team was then set up to sift through uh, the earth um, to see whether we could find any clues, which in fact we did because there were fingernails found uh, and that was useful to us and also teeth. So forensically you've got some evidence to work from and and go forward? From there on, yes, that's right. Um, And obviously uh, at the post-mortem the the clothes that the uh, person was wearing... um, was taken off, um, although it was just absolutely badly stained um, with body, as I say, with body fluid and and just uh, surrounding uh, staining, really. Uh, And that was sent off to the Forensic Science Laboratory in Chepstow, um, where after several days of work, um, we were able to to say that there was a design on the T-shirt so as a result of the forensic examination, did, did clothing render any clues? It did, uh, subsequently, of course, because um, obviously there was uh, quite a, a bit of uh, media attention um, and we were able to um, produce that item, that top item of clothing, um, which was then put on the television uh, and was circulated, world, uh, well, certainly not worldwide, but uh, around the country. So there was found, as far as I'm aware, she was wearing some shorts and then this top, which... This top, T-shirt. Yeah, and the top had a motif on, did it? Yes, it did, yeah. Souvenir de Maroc uh, and a camel. And a camel. Outline of a camel, yeah. And interestingly, we'll come on to that, because I think the first bit uh, was the the, the shorts. There was a a, a manufacturer's label in the back. That said that uh, there was a possibility that the the person had in fact been to America or or like uh, or it had been brought into the country by someone else uh, and bought I mean we even have to consider whether that was a second hand item yeah quite that detail was released to the press who played quite a significant part in this inquiry didn't they yes, were they helping did. you yeah the, the detail from the shirt was publicised in the local press and, and nationally, wasn't it, I think? That, that's right. Yeah, that, was, that was crucial, really, as far as we were concerned, to, to get an identification of it. And as a result of that, this phone call came in from High Wycombe, which is in Buckinghamshire. That's right. And that's over 100 miles from where you are. But... It is indeed. And that changed the whole dynamics of the inquiry, didn't it? Yes, it did, because now we were dealing with somebody who... Uh, probably uh, been murdered way away from our force area. So that happened fairly quickly, I think. Yes, it did. Within, well, uh, exactly, I can't tell you, but uh, within a, a very short space of time, uh, which, which led us to uh, 
send a team to High Wycombe, uh, which is in the Thames Valley area, um, and uh, for inquiries to be commenced there in a conjunction with Thames Valley. So while that, up to that point, obviously your teams of detectives and other officers were beavering away, looking at missing persons, a huge amount of work being done, and then this phone calls made, which, which really helped. That's right, and uh, beavering away at the same time, of course, were the, uh, the officers who were deputed to sieve the soil that had been around the body, uh, which turned up the fingernails and, more crucially, the, the teeth, um, which uh, subsequently uh, were able to confirm who the body belonged to. So, as a result of your forensic work and this call that gave you a, a lead to that area, you subsequently found who the deceased was, didn't you? We, we had a name from, yes, from the lady who, who told us who it was, and uh, that led us to go to the, the premises of uh, Michael Telling. And, and the body was believed at that time to be of his wife, Monica Telling. Well, she was named as the missing person, yes. This is certainly turning out to be an unusual discovery, isn't it? A decomposing, headless body with gunshot wounds. This one must have brought a lump to the throat of the police officers involved because you've got a remote location, an unidentified female body who's been dead for some time, and to sort of add a very strange circumstances to it. She's been decapitated by means unknown at that time. But if you go back a stage from that, John, think about that guy that had just got out of his car and was just going about his his business and he comes across a site like this, a decomposing body. I mean, we've heard before that people have gone to locations be it remote ones or or wherever they are and seeing something that they thought that's unusual and it turns out to be a dumped bag of clothing that has decomposed yeah. and leaves have fallen across it and of course they've they've sort of examined it and thought that that looks like a body and then it's been a load of clothing or rubbish or, or a, a mannequin. mannequin yeah exactly we're on the same line yes a mannequin how many times have people found dumped mannequins and thought they'd seen a dead body and the police attend and trigger an inquiry and and of course subsequently it's found to be a mannequin out of a shop that somebody's discarded or whatever we can only imagine what he thought when he realized it wasn't a mannequin or rubbish it was it was part of a body yeah and and we know that he went and reported the matter immediately and what does that then lead on to as far as the police are concerned well having been and done these sort of things ourselves of course it triggers an initial police response to establish the facts and on that day a police officer would have gone spoke to the man who would have pointed out the location where he thought he saw a body and then a police officer would go and look for himself and I'm sure quite quickly realised that this was anything else other than a crime. You know, somebody's concealed part of a body. What is and why has it got there? 
And then you need to instigate the whole machinery of the police investigation then, don't you? So that's when Brian was informed. And as he's told us, he attends the scene and the home office pathologist attends. And that is the start of the investigation. Yeah, as we know, we're instilling all young police officers who are joining that if you come across anything suspicious or sent to something that clearly is suspicious death, that you don't tamper with the scene. You you back off and then call up. As long as you establish that somebody has died, you back off and then... Preserve your scene, don't Preserve you? the scene and report it, and that escalates it up the chain of police command to Brian Rundle, in this case, who would have taken charge of the uh, investigation. And then your incident room starts, your, your staffing, your resources need to be got together. Uh, you need your incident room needs to be in a in a place that's appropriate for where your inquiries and your investigations are going on. Yes, and while that's in the background being put in place, of course, when Brian Rundle and other senior officers would have attended, the procedure is that the body remains there and a home office pathologist is called and they... 99 times out of 100, if not 100%, will attend the scene and look at the body in situ. Mm. And they're people who are, the, the country's divided up into regions, and at any one time there is a home office pathologist on standby 24-7 to attend suspicious deaths that the police have to investigate. And when you think about these things, John, and you think about the discovery of a, a dead body, and you think about death itself. I'm thinking about the first time that I actually saw a dead body because it is quite a shock. I mean, when you think about Victorian times, they were used to seeing and um, having a dead body in the house before the funeral. But but for me, as you well know, I before I was a police officer, I was a police cadet. So at the age of 17, I went off on secondment to Chesterfield Hospital, the old Chesterfield Hospital. And as part of your secondment, they ask you if you if you want to see a dead body. And I thought, well, I, I better because I'm going to be in this situation and I, I better get a feel for it before before I do it for, for real, if you like. So I went along to the mortuary at Chesterfield Hospital and it was a it was a one story building like a little bungalow and they referred to it as Ivy Cottage and that was the first time I ever saw a a dead body I mean I went into the mortuary and the programs that I'd watched like at Quincy and that kind of thing where they've got a huge room and it's white and there's all stainless steel fridges there and all that kind of thing that's what's in your mind and I walked in and as soon as you walked in the fridges were in front of you and there weren't actually that many of them and then you turned to your right and there were two slabs and bodies were laid on both of both of those and I remember walking in thinking I don't really like this and walking out again and then I I got outside and I thought actually it wasn't that bad and I went back in again and and that was my experience of a 
my very first experience of a of a dead body. Do you remember the first body that you ever saw? I think every person who, whether the police or or not, at some stage will see a dead person, be that a relative or a result of crime or an accident, whatever. And myself, I joined later than you, not that much later, at 18 and a half. And prior to that, I'd not seen anybody who died. And of course, at some stage, I would think that every police officer will be involved in, you know, the investigation or the uh, dealing with a dead person. And my first experience was a lady who died in an old people's home. She wasn't expected to die. She did. So the police are called and they act as a coroner's officer to uh, commence the coroner's inquiry into the death. And then it depends which route you take as to how many more dead bodies you will see during your service. If you're a traffic officer, you'll go to fatal accidents. So you will see bodies in in situ then. If you go into the CID, you're more likely to see murder victims or seriously injured victims. And then you have to ask yourself, once you see dead bodies as a, I shan't say routine, but more regularly, do you, do you become dispassionate to it? Do you, do you get used to it? What, what's your thoughts? I think you do as, as your experiences in life go on. The more people you see that have died or been killed, the more, you, and it's, when you first start, it's the unexpected, unknown. Yeah, and I think there does have to be an element of being dispassionate because you can't look, when you're looking on upon a body in a post-mortem, you can't think this is somebody's dad, somebody's brother, somebody's husband, because then you wouldn't, you just wouldn't be able to operate would you you wouldn't be able to function and and do your job you have to think this is my job this is the post-mortem this is what we're doing today yes the all emergency service workers will come across gruesome scenes and that is part of what their job is about and and when you've seen it once twice and subsequent times you, you do get more conditioned battle wary <laughs> yeah battle hardened really but Coming back to the police work, of course, the the other area I find quite fascinating when I've been to post-mortem is that the, the the pathologists know that you're a police officer, obviously, and if you show interest in what they're doing, they very often will talk you through what they're doing, and, and it is quite interesting and fascinating how they work and explain what they're doing, which you wouldn't get as a member of the public because, of course, you won't be allowed in. Yeah, and when I think, I've already mentioned the first time that that I went to view a body and I was only 17 years of age and it wasn't just the first dead body I'd seen, it was the first post-mortem I'd seen. Once I got over that idea that it was a person and we were just looking at doing a job and the job was to find out what had killed this person. Um, Yeah, I found it really fascinating. And the pathologist was 
going through the motions of the post-mortem. And I remember he, he, he took the heart and he was dissecting the heart. And then he said to me, he said, look at this six foot man. And then he showed me a little part of the heart where the artery had closed. And he said, that one little spot has killed that six foot man. And you think, that's that's amazing. I've been involved in several murder investigations, which we thought was a murder investigation, and in the end turned out to be a death by natural causes because the pathologist has found, as you say, a defect in their body that's caused them to die. But until they get to the post-mortem and death is determined, what starts as a suspicious stroke murder inquiry then becomes, sadly, just somebody has died of natural causes. And that's down to the professionalism of the pathologist, isn't it? Yeah, so going back to this case and this investigation, we've now got a name for the victim, and that's Monica Tellin. So if we look at Monica, we know that she was living with her husband, Michael Tellin, 100 miles away because she was found in Exeter, which is in Devon, and she was living with Michael about 100 miles away in Buckinghamshire. So when we think about where you start with it, this this is where the appeal to the public comes in and the benefits of being able to glean information from the public. Because when they found Monica, who on earth is going to link it to a place 100 miles away? So it's really important that that the police caught the public and encourage them to give information, isn't it? I mean, if we go back to that time in 1983, of course, the way of living and the technology, the media, the magnificent sort of uh, quick communications we take for granted today didn't exist. It was literally word of mouth and then widening the inquiry using press and television to try and publicise the fact that this person had been found. Totally different than how we approach it today. And it is very important, obviously, that the police and the press and the public work together to try and identify this lady's body. Yeah, and I think we've said on previous occasions that the world is now a smaller place because of the internet, because of social media. But yeah, we go back to 1983, and it's not that long ago, is it? When a police investigation was all about knocking on doors, talking to people, um, and and also making those public appeals via television. I mean, it goes back to almost the beginning of our careers, isn't it? So it's in our lifetime, so to speak, isn't it? It's the start of our police careers give or take a few years, and we've gone from that type of policing to the policing today, as we say, where via social media it can be broadcast quickly round the world. That never happened or was possible in those days. No, and you've got to take your hat off to Brian Rundle's team for eliciting the information that they did to be able to identify Monica and then 
moving on from that, you know, there was many uh, twists and turns in this investigation because although Monica was found dead in this country, um, she wasn't British, was she? No, I mean, until the inquiry got going and by a lot of uh, hard police work and, and like all police inquiries, murders or whatever, you can have that little bit of luck that puts you in the direction of the truth, so to speak. And very quickly, they established that she was from California in America. So really, the turning point in, in this case was when the forensic scientists managed to put together what uh, the clothing that Monica was wearing, and they managed to enhance that. And it's that that went on to the television and, and the media and a public appeal was made in relation to the clothing. Do you recognise any of any of this clothing or can you recognise it as as being similar to somebody that, that you know? I think once that appeal regarding the clothing had been made, and I've no doubt that they received um, a number of uh, calls and pieces of information in in relation to that, but kind of the two important ones was there was a, a lady who rang and said that her daughter had been to California and she had bought shorts in California that were similar to the ones that Monica was wearing. And in relation to the T-shirt, Monica's friend came forward to the police and said that T-shirt is one that Monica owned. So once they found out that she was born and raised in America, it kind of beggars the question, doesn't it? How did she move from California and ended up being decapitated and left in a wooded area in, in Exeter in Devon? It's at this point that we're going to cross the Atlantic and speak to Monica's sister, Erica. And we are very fortunate and very grateful to her for speaking to us about this very sad part uh, of her family's story. Yes, we called on some old friends in California that we know to help us try and find her, didn't we? Ex-police officers that we know. And via a joint effort, we managed to contact Erica. And Erica lives in a quite remote area of Northern America, isn't it? And it's Yes, she lives in Oregon. Oregon. And of course, when we first spoke to her, she was having difficulty communicating via the internet, tried to improve it, but even so, it's not 100%, is it? And it's, it has a few glitches at times, but basically we managed to... Uh, talked to her at quite some length and in the end we've we've pieced together quite a an extensive story of the background of Monica and, and her involvement haven't we we have yeah and i i think it's i think it's worth saying that both ourselves and monica aren't of the techno generation so any slight glitches that there are in our communications um can be expected So talking to Erica will help us understand what happened 
to bring Monica to the, the UK. And it all came about due to a chance meeting with a stranger. Hi, Erica, and thanks for talking to us from your home in Oregon in the US. Uh, Monica was your sister. It's a really shocking story that has been reported on many occasions in both the UK and the US. But to understand Monica the person, can you tell us what life was like in the Zumsteg household back in the days? Well, Monica was the first of the three children. Monica was six years older than my twin brother and I. She was born in Oakland on my father's birthday, so three days apart from my own. So that was kind of like having two twins. (laughs) But she was incredibly uh, beautiful. She was very funny, quite humorous. You know, with my brother and I, in a lot of ways, she was almost like a second mother, I think. (laughs) You know, she was my grandparent. My grandparents had two boys, my father and my uncle. And my grandmother was so thrilled when the first girl came, you know, after having raised two boys. And, you know, we were raised in, in the Catholic Church. We enjoyed our holidays. The family, you know, would get together with our cousins. And Monica was always very creative. And, you know, she wrote to the grandparents. She um, created things, made things. And, you know, and she liked to dress up. And it was always kind of fun when Monica was around, especially when she liked to get you with what I call gotcha jokes. Uh, And, um, you know, she was good to my brother and I. I'm certain there was times that Monica felt like, oh, gosh, the twins, not the twins again. (laughs) But, you know, I have to say there was some outings with her. And, you know, Monica had this amazing, amazing laugh. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard for me because that was what I held on to for so, so long after she had gone was that laugh. It was genuine. And I mean, she just got people's attention and people liked to be around Monica and she just attracted people. She worked very, very hard. You know, in kindergarten, they asked my mother to take her out because she was disrupting the class because (laughs) Monica taught herself how to read. And then in high school, uh, maybe the year before graduation, they called my mother and said, we can't teach Monica anything anymore. She's she's too beyond this. And she didn't have a way to go over to San Mateo from the coastal town of Half Moon Bay at that time. So she decided she would work and help teach um, at the junior high school there, and she did gymnastics, the uneven bars and such, and that's what she did until she was able to go over to San Mateo, and at that point, she just had kind of the old beat-up station wagon, but it was what she could do on her own, and she was so proud of what she could do, and, the, you know, she was so good. She contacted her grandparents. They loved her. I mean, it does everything. She didn't forget holidays. She didn't forget any birthdays, any anniversaries. And um, I don't know, she was just really a beautiful person. Erica, where were you living at the time with the family? Obviously, you've moved away from your family roots. Where was the family brought up originally? 
Well, my mother and father, they met in Oakland. Uh, Mom was born in 29 in Switzerland during the Depression and such and went through a rough time through the war and all that. And she came on her own uh, to the States. And, you know, fast forward, she ended up working in Rau House, a restaurant, German restaurant in uh, Oakland, California. And my father came in. He would go in there in his military outfit. He had been in the Air National Guard and the Air Force. And pretty much he saw her and he went home to his parents and said, that's the woman I'm going to marry. And he meant it. (laughs) But uh, married in 55. And um, Monica was born in 56. And that was uh, in Oakland on dad's birthday in November in the same hospital. Later, they had moved to um, Washington, where dad took on a job with the Boeing Corporation. Um, and then later transferred to New Orleans, Louisiana, um, to work in Boeing over there. Um, and then in 62, uh, my twin brother and I were born in New Orleans. I think he got a little tired of some of the South. <laughs> and finally decided, let's go back to California. We moved back there. I mean, we moved a bit. It was 65-ish or so. And um, we were, in, you know, moved about in the Bay Area for a bit. Santa Rosa, we moved there in 1976. Monica had moved out of the home uh, from Half Moon Bay and had her own job and and an apartment and such and was you know, really trying to start off well on her own, was proud of everything she was doing. She loved journalism. She studied journalism. Um, and, you know, different things. She had so many ideas. So, but anyway, that's where we ended up in Santa Rosa, was in 76. And Monica at that point was living, I believe, in Sacramento area. Um, and what's Santa Rosa like? Is it a very small place? Santa Rosa in 76 was smaller. Um a beautiful town, had vineyards, um, beautiful uh, hills and structures. And um, it was a home of people like Charles Schultz of uh, the Peanuts. And in fact, he had an ice skating rink there. And such and us kids, we used to go and hang out down there. And you would see uh, Charles Schultz quite frequently. Um, you know, it's a very interesting town. Um, it has a lot of history and, um, I just can't say enough about it. The area is, it's, it's right to the Redwoods. It's not far from the ocean. Um, it's just a beautiful area. Um, was it a happy family? Were you all happy families at that time? I would say for the most part, you know, people like to say things aren't perfect. Well, what is? But, you know, um, we had a, a intact family. A father worked nine to five, um, you know, good people in the neighborhoods and that. And, you know, my twin brother and I as teenagers, you know, we gained quite a bit of friendships. And, uh, you know, we certainly were teenagers as well, you know, so... Um, but yeah, I would say we're the, just the average, you know, middle-class American family. When did you first hear the name Michael Telling? It was like a gorgeous day and my father 
and some of his friends and my mother decided to take a motorcycle ride to Sausalito, um, which is on the uh, Marin side or the north side of the San Francisco Bay. And I went along. I was riding. My father was kind of funny. He liked to name everything. So my mother and father were on their 1100 Yamaha called Genghis. <laughs> and I was riding my Honda 54, um, which was named Gertrude. And so we rode down to Sausalito and we pulled off Highway 101. And we come into the town and there's two stop signs there, an intersection. And to our right is this man on this Harley Davidson. And my father noticed it. And from the bikes, they started to talk. And this is not unusual with bikers. doesn't matter whether you're Harley or Yamaha or whatever. Bikers seem to have a camaraderie. And we wave to each other. Or you talk to each other about your machines. So it wasn't, you know. So at any rate, my father noticed this motorcycle. It was the 1980 belt drive Harley Davidson and the first using a belt drive. And so from that stop sign, we pulled into a parking lot and the biker on the Harley pulled in with us. And that's when I met Michael Telling. And of course, he started talking about the machines. And here seems this interesting English gentleman that has obviously come from England to buy this motorcycle from Dudley Perkins Jr. in the city and then have it shipped back to England. And, you know, I guess my father, you know, he just basically invited him to come walk around the touristy area of Sausalito and have some lunch. And that went well. So across, uh, not far from the city, was what you call the flea market. It's outdoor market people with their wares and antiques and that that they sell. And so Michael joined us over there as well. And he was walking with me and we were looking at some of these displays and across some rocks and gems and such. And I was looking at some opals and Michael looked at me and he goes, oh, do you like opals? And I said, yes, I do. And, the, you know, by the end of the day, as it got later, you know, it seemed like a, just a, a very nice gentleman. Dad and him clicked over the motorcycles. And, you know, my father, I think his idea was invite Michael up to Santa Rosa so he can come and see his bikes, come and take rides through the vineyards and, you know, just and come to another area to be a tourist before he went back to England. So I think it was probably maybe the next weekend and I'm at home and I I was 18 or so at that time. And that's, you know, that's where we met him. And, you know, it, it could have been any moment later and never would have happened. It could have been any other person at that stop sign and my father would never have reacted and seen the bike or vice versa. And, um, so that's that's how it came. He came here to buy a motorcycle. Suffice to say that first impressions of Michael were good and you all had a mutual interest in the motorcycles. 
he was very nice. He was kind of funny and kind of nice. And, you know, and we started when he came up the following weekend, um, we took different motorcycle rides with Michael and, and we rode to Napa and we went to a beautiful vineyard there. And inside they had all sorts of wares and such for sale. And there were actually these beautiful handmade candles. They were quite expensive. They were um, beeswax and made by an artist. And Michael ended up buying me one of these candles. And after that, I think there was one night, then he asked me to go out on a date or to dinner, I would say, is what he asked. So I went to dinner with Michael and had a good dinner and such. And I believe he took my car and... Then we went to a theater to watch a movie. And while I'm standing in line with Michael, he handed me this velvet-covered jewel box. And inside it was a very quality gold chain and a gold design with an Australian opal set in the middle of it. And I just recollected back to that flea market when I just met this man and asking me, if I liked opals, <laughs> and here it was. And at some point, I, there was another trip. You know, so we went. He asked me to join him on a ride on the Harley down to San Francisco, um, where he received a speeding ticket on the way back up. At any so, at some point, I didn't know anything about Michael. It was just this British. Um, this just seemed like kind of a lovely person, kind of a fun, interesting person. And we had something in common as far as the motorcycles. You have to understand one thing about our family. We were not raised, we were cut, we weren't raised uh, shallow or to be impressed with somebody because of their money. And at one point I came to my father and I told him, I said, you know, I like Michael. He seems to be a very nice gentleman. And he says, however, I just want to be his friend. I literally came to him and told him that. He says, I just want to be his friend. So can you talk to him for me? And my father did. Because I was feeling, I, you know, I'm not sure what it was, but I was not used to being spoiled or I, I'm not sure, it wasn't quite normal. I meet this gentleman, now he's handing me this opal and this necklace, and we had no clue um, what kind of money or anything else that this individual had. You know, it just was like, you know, obviously he's got some kind of money here, but I'm not impressed by the money, and for whatever reason, I just, you know, I, I didn't mind saying, hey, I'll be his friend. So it's interesting that Erica is talking about Michael almost wooing or courting her in the when they first meet and he's buying her expensive gifts and taking her to restaurants and, and the theatre and it would appear that he's got the money to do that. Well, at that time, as Erica explains, of course, they knew nothing of the background of Michael. And of course, took him on face value as you would do. He seemed a 
a pleasant person who was chatty and meaning well and quite naturally he took a shine I think to Erica in the first instance. Yeah it must have seemed quite unusual though mustn't it because going back to the 80s to to suddenly meet somebody in California who is originally from the UK and that he's flown there to buy a Harley Davidson to have it shipped back then that that suggests he's got he's got money at his disposal to do that because that's got to have been an unusual thing for that time hasn't it well going back to that period of time i visited california with to visit family over there and it was quite clear that although english people did go to the west coast primarily at that time it was the holiday resorts of florida and the east coast that attracted English people. And when I visited family there, most people said that, you know, they hadn't seen English people. You were a bit of a novelty, weren't you? Well, yes. And my brother, when he went initially, he said that, you know, they actually looked upon him as this uh, this prize that had moved into the area as a, an Englishman because there wasn't that many resident there, if any. And I think at that time, when Michael went, as you say, he, not everybody in the street would fly to to California, to San Francisco and buy a Harley Davidson motorbike direct from a well-known supplier in that area and travel around on it and stay in hotels. That would, I suspect, be quite unusual. Yeah, and all the expense that he was going to, as you say, flying to the US, buying the Harley Davidson, having it shipped back, staying in hotels while he was in California, buying expensive gifts, uh, the Opals, for example, uh, that Erica speaks of. Uh, there's got to be a reason for that. Uh, and that's because of the family that he belongs to. He was born into the Vesti family. Yes, which they didn't know or heard of even. And we hadn't really until we this case came across our radar. We'd not heard of them, had we? No, but al- although even now, I suppose a lot of British people won't have heard of the Vesti family. But if I say Frey Bentos or Dewhurst, the Master Butchers, I think, I think we've all heard of those and actually the Vesti family that's part of their part of their business and at one time I did read in the 1980s the Vestis were the second richest family in the UK after the Queen and the Royal family they don't hold that position anymore but their wealth and their fortune is still considerable I mean We've looked into the Vestis, haven't we? And there's no doubt about it that they were very, going back in the generations when they started in the, was it 1930s and 40s? They built up a empire throughout the world, didn't they? Trading in meat and products and opening, as we say, the Dewhurst butcher's chain, which most medium-sized towns had a Dewhurst at the time. Well, if you think in 1977, there was 1,400 Dewhurst butcher's shops 
in the country. There's got to have been one on every street corner. Yes. And, of course, that was the the business acumen of the earlier Vesti family. They'd gone over to America and other countries and observed for themselves the meat trades and realised that there was rich pickings to be had by bringing ideas back and also inventing new ways of transporting meat, like canning it and then coming on to refrigeration for shipping, which wasn't common at the time. And once you've cracked those type of inventions, you can transport products around the world. And they, and I'm sure there's others, but they seem to be very successful at doing that. If we think about Michael Tellin and his parents and the family that he was born into, his mother was um, Joyce Vesty. And she was the granddaughter of William Vesty. And William and his brother Edmund, and I'm going back to the late 19th century, um, the, the brothers worked for their father in his modest provisions business, and that was based in Liverpool. But they were very ambitious, the brothers, and they ventured on and pioneered cold storage food shipping. Um, and they also went to America and what they realised was that the Americans were using good cuts of meat and they were throwing away the the lesser cuts. So they, therefore they were being wasted and it was those, in inverted commas, wasted pieces of meat that that they took and they found a way to preserve and can and obviously sell that waste meat and they opened a cannery in Chicago and that was a huge success because when you think about it when you go back to the early 20th century canned beef was a a staple food during the time of depression and during a time of of war and it was that that grew the Vesti fortune and as time went on in the 20th century, they started to buy parts of South America and Australia and establish cattle ranches. And I'm sure that during World War I, the Vesti family purchased six million acres of land in Australia alone. Mm. So even by that time, they got some huge clout. They got a, a good fortune uh, behind them and that carried on and and grew and grew and as the business grew over the years then so did the fortune and what comes with a successful multinational corporation is that fortune and the family can then enjoy that fortune and it's against that background that Michael was born into this family he was an only child yes and like in many of these big family empires that have done very, very well, and there's no doubt the Vestis were very astute business people. Not everybody that's born subsequently is of the same ilk. And in this case, Michael fell into that category, didn't he? He did, but he didn't share his family history with the with the Zumstegs, did he? Well, prior to meeting the Zumstegs, he no doubt realised that because his family were who they were and the money, it attracted 
no doubt people with unscrupulous motives and you become very guarded as to what you tell people until you really get to know them. But thinking about that, he didn't really know the Zumstegs, but he, he started showering gifts upon certainly Erica, the opals, the taking her out, uh, generally an attempt to court her. And, and he didn't know them that well. So is the fact that he doesn't mention the family history, he doesn't want the family just to be seen. He wants himself to be seen as an individual. I do think that he bought some friendships. I'm not saying that about the Zumstegs, but I think that he did seek to buy some friendships. So I think he wasn't hiding the money. He was hiding or appeared to be hiding where the money came from. Uh, and, and that was obviously the Vesti family. Yes, I'm sure that's true. I mean, um, you know, the Zumstegs didn't know who he was other than on face value, did they, really? And although he was um, able to spend money, the true source of the money wasn't known, was it, for some time to them? No, and, and that's why I say he... I don't think he was ashamed of the fact that he had lots of money. I just don't think he wanted to reveal the source of that money, i.e. this very aristocratic family that he that he came from. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, as we know, he, he, he threw up a lot of smoke screens to stop people knowing who he was and finding out who he was. And that was no doubt, as you say, he was uh, he didn't want to disclose where the money was coming from. But on the other hand, he did spend it quite freely, as we know. But to him, probably that wasn't huge amounts of money. Yes, and Michael didn't have to work, did he? He uh, had a very generous allowance from the Vesti Trust. And if he incurred any expenses, he just put forward the bill and the Vesti Trust paid for it. Yes, I mean, he from the day he was born, clearly he was going to not want for money because that was the nature of the family. And as you say, there was a trust fund set up for him, which within reason would pay his daily living expenses, travel, etc. And he didn't have to work. And as far as we're aware, he, he didn't work. And that was probably one of his problems, wasn't it? So if that's the family situation, then you can afford to fly over to the west coast of America and and ship out a limited edition Harley Davidson and stay in nice hotels and treat the people that that you meet to nice things, nice restaurants. I think that that was his normal life, as he would see it. So having met and associated with the Zumstegs for some time, I think it got to the stage, didn't it, where... They were struggling for things to entertain him. Yes, I mean, after the initial meeting on the motorbikes, of course, and the friendship starting to grow, and my experience of people in California have been the same. They're, they're generous people and they like English people and they're not, as we said, common on the West Coast at that time. And they, they sort of, you know, shine to English people and they did in a friendly way, try to entertain Michael 
and show him around their country and, and motorbike rides, as we know they did. And, of course, I think, as we know Michael's background, he probably was lonely, and this family had shown interest in him and, and were kind to him, and, of course, he... He, he stayed he, with them. He stayed with them, and, and possibly a little bit longer than what they thought, but they liked him, didn't they? They did like him, yeah. And I think then we get to the stage where the the Zumstegs, certainly Monica and Erica's dad, Lou, and their mum, Elsa, they'd done all the touristy things in the area where they live, Santa Rosa in, in California, and that's when Lou decided or, or certainly made the suggestion that Michael go to Sacramento to visit his eldest daughter, Monica. Yeah, I mean, they'd shown him great hospitality. They showed him round the tourist spots of the area where they lived. And there is a point you reach where have we been in that position when people have visited us. There's a limit to what you can show people. And then they have to go elsewhere and move on. And I think that was truly their their thoughts that, you know, we've seen this bit and there is other bits of America completely different. And if he's interested, perhaps Monica would, would show him round. Yeah, and by Lou making that suggestion, had he have realised what that would subsequently lead to, he... Uh... He wouldn't have made such a suggestion, and that's the fact that he introduced Michael Telling to his eldest daughter, Monica. Yes, and you know, unbeknown to any of the Zumsteg family, they had no idea what subsequently would happen. But nobody can predict the future, and they did it in the best intentions at that time. How did Monica first meet Michael after your family experience at in California? Where, where, how did Monica get involved? So Michael had spent probably a week or so at her house. I don't know, doing outings and that in Santa Rosa. And then at some point, my father said, "Well, I have a daughter up in Sacramento area. Maybe she would be interested in showing you around that part of California, which is." you know, probably about three hours or so from Lake Tahoe. Um, and so that's how Monica met Michael. So my father, yep, so Michael went up to um, Carmichael, which is a suburb there of Sacramento, and met with Monica. And, you know, apparently they went up to Lake Tahoe, and he pretty much, you know, wined and dined her, et cetera, and, you know, just really from there, I, you know, he just put on the charm, you know, and I guess they just started getting closer. Monica was, you know, kind of falling for this gentleman, but she was also independent and she had her job. And I think she was a, something like a junior executive. And, um, and you know, at one point, um, you know, it went pretty quick. Uh, they've started coming back to the house together and they were quickly becoming an item. And I think to myself, I thought, well, this is kind of exciting because, you know, initially, I thought, wow, Michael's really kind of fun. You know, he seemed he really put on the charm. 
he very much put on the charm. Uh, is, am I right in saying that within a very short period of time of Michael coming on the scene and meeting Monica, that the relationship uh, sort of developed very rapidly and, and, and they proposed marriage very quickly after the meeting? Yes, yes. And in fact, I think it was after Monica had moved to Burbank in Southern California. And then Michael um, followed and started staying with her in Burbank. And then at some point they came to the house and announced, uh, and he asked for dad's, her hand in marriage. And it was announced that they were going to be married. They announced, and then the next thing I know, they're talking about the wedding. I was going to be the maid of honor for the wedding. It was to take place in Santa Rosa at a Catholic church. And Michael started going to, you know, uh, the counseling through the church and such. And Monica was, you know, confirmed Catholic. So she was looking forward to it. My grandparents, you know, she was, they were so proud of her and, and it was going to be a beautiful wedding. And that's when one of the first lies came to light. Here they were over in Britain and such. And it ends up that Michael was married and had a son, Matthew. And he was not yet divorced. And yet here he was in America, you know, uh, trying to marry somebody else. And because the divorce would not be final in time for the wedding in California, the church it was canceled there and you know so that was one of the first ones the lies and monica was told by him he started saying if i recall right that he was a member of the british secret intelligence or secret service and this type of stuff um and you know, you're you're going, okay, well, maybe this is why he's got, I don't, you know, pretty bizarre he's making, you know, but he's something. We don't know what. I mean, it's just kind of odd, but that's what he had told Monica. So when he was courting her, she was under the impression of this is who he is. And, you know, it's just so hard because Monica was young um, she was beautiful, she was talented, she was quite intelligent, she was very social, people just loved Monica. Well, it's easy for us sitting here and for you listening to this podcast right now to wonder if these warning signs about Michael's behaviours and his lies and whether they should have been heeded at that time. I think it's hindsight's a marvellous thing. We keep saying that, don't we? And people carry on and I think we all want to be optimistic, don't we? And you're living in the present, aren't you? You're living at that time when, thinking about Monica and Michael, you're at that time when you're, you're falling in love, it's a whole new romance, and what you're being told by the person that you're falling in love with you want to believe them. You want to believe that this is, this is it, that, that this is the one. So do you kind of, do you half listen to, to what he's saying or because you are falling for him, do you kind of restructure your thoughts to, to cope with what he's, what he's telling you just so that handsome young prince on the dashing white charger 
is actually still the dashing young prince on the white charger? You know, do you do you sort of just restructure yourself so that you think about them in in the way that you want to think about them? I think it's, we've studied this in many cases, haven't we, that we're looking at for the future episodes. How many women are victims of fraud and deceit where they've parted with money to support people in other parts of the world? And when it all crashes down, it was obvious from the word go that this was bogus, if you like. But they always forget the bad bits and look at the positives. And in this case, I'm sure that uh, Michael must have been a, quite a nice guy in many respects. But deep down, as we know, he was telling lies and being deceitful. I think you're right, yeah. And, and I think you can take a pattern from it that not just in this case where Monica wants to believe that this is the man that she's going to fall in love with and this is the man that she's ultimately going to marry. But as you've said, there's lots of other instances where what one party tells another, they either don't hear it at all or they don't listen to it so that it says what they want it to say. And and that gives some justification to how the relationship is being held together and allows the relationship to continue forward. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Monica did think a great deal of Michael. Genuinely, yeah. I mean, we know from her background and, and what Erica has said that that she was settled, she was focused on her career in America and this man suddenly appeared who changed her thoughts and she had to toy with a conscience to give up what she wanted to do herself. So she obviously fell head over heels in love with Michael and didn't shuts her eyes, which we see so many times, to things that didn't add up but carried on regardless. And that's, that isn't uncommon, is it? No, I mean, when you think about the what he tells her about he's a member of the secret services or or a member of the intelligence that immediately puts up a shield that you can't ask any questions about my background because that's what I am. I, I, I work for the secret services and therefore I can't tell you. So you accept that. Oh, this is his job. This is why I can't ask him any questions. And, and you accept that. As an outsider looking in, we would say, not that old chestnut, wouldn't we? Because how many times have we heard that in other cases where people have lived a double life and they're saying to their partners, whether they've got one, two, three or numerous, I work for the Secret Services and therefore you can't ask me about my absences from home or my salary or or where I am or where I am in the world. And that and that's why I say not that old chestnut, because we've heard it so many times, haven't we? We haven't it's used that excuse of this this is what I am, but I can't tell you because it's secret disarms people fairly quickly and mm. and the fact is then to people who aren't wise to it, 
well, that explains the odd things that he's done or said or his absences or secret phone calls he was making, which he didn't want anybody else to hear. That explains that and it gives an excuse and people then think, oh, right, that's I've never come across this before and, and accept what they're being told. And in reality, like if somebody said that to me now, you'd be very, very suspicious because a genuine person in that area of work wouldn't even mention that they were involved. And as soon as they've said that, they've give the game away, but they're not wise enough to know that at the time. And Monica fell for it, and other people have fallen for it, from what Michael's been spinning these fanciful stories, which they believed. But you, you believe because you want to believe. I mean, in this case, it's Michael who is lying, basically. He's put this excuse and affront up as to why he's doing things. Normally, it's the other way around, that it's women with money who are being conned by the male because his intention is to steal the wealthy person's money. And they fall for it, don't they? How many times have we seen it? They lend them money, they give an excuse why they need money, so they give it them because they love them. And of course, unbeknown, this person is systematically milking them, and when the money's gone, they go, and they say, I believed him, how could he do this to me? And it's that's that scenario the other way around, isn't it? But then when you think about the people that are in that situation where they have been milk dry because they've believed a story, the first thing they say is, how stupid am I? And that's what I'm saying about reflecting mm. on yeah. reflecting on yourself that, yeah, I was, you know, I was taken in. I got it wrong. You know, so so it is the the two-pronged, Thing in that you believe it because you want to believe it and you want to be with that person, but you also want to believe it so that you don't think, how stupid have I been? Yes, and I'm sure, I mean, when you look at the circumstances of Monica, you know, not only has she fell for all what Michael's told her, she was prepared to leave her job, her country, her family, move to England with him eventually, and you don't want to admit that, even if you had doubts, that you hope that those would go away and things would be all right in the future. And it wasn't just lies that he was telling. I am a secret agent. I work for the intelligence services. It was also truths that he didn't reveal. And the main truth that he didn't reveal was that while he was caught in Monica, he was actually still married. Yes, and of course it come back to haunt him because when marriage was proposed to Monica, wasn't it? He hadn't got divorced. And I think he proposed to Monica. He asked uh, Lou, her, her, her father, for her hand in marriage and it was all going very swimmingly. And I think he was thinking... By the time it gets to my marriage to Monica, which was all arranged for uh, the church in Santa Rosa in California, that my last marriage will have been dissolved by then. But it, it didn't work out like that. And, and that's when he had to admit that uh, he was actually married. 
Yes, I mean, he, he was playing for time, wasn't he? He thought that, uh, as you rightly say, that when I actually get married, bearing in mind he'd gone through with meeting the Catholic Church in And California. undergoing those counselling sessions yeah. with the priest. He was playing along with what was expected of him, but secretly harbouring the fact that he was still married with a child, in fact, and praying that his divorce came through before he actually married Monica. And, of course, like we know, people who tell packs of lies very often get caught out, and it happened to him. You've, you've, got, to have a, you've got to have a good memory to tell lies, and you've also got to realise where those lies might ultimately take you. But in, in this case, the fact that he was married wasn't a lie. It, it was just an unrevealed truth. That he wanted to, no doubt, if he'd got divorced. Wouldn't mention it again. I, I think if he'd have been divorced by the time he married Monica, at the time that they had planned to get married, I don't think he would have ever mentioned it. We're going to continue to look into this case over the next two episodes, and we're going to release those every two weeks and try to unpick everything that is happening. We'll be talking to a police officer in England who had dealings with both Monica and Michael. And we'll also be hearing the words of Monica's friend, Christina, who saw some of the behaviours and experienced some of the problems that there were with the relationship with Michael and Monica firsthand. So in order to listen to our, our next episodes, stay subscribed to this feed to hear the story continue in two weeks' time and also to hear more true crime investigations for the future. You can also send us messages about this and any of the other cases or any thoughts that you have via our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. So join us next time when we deal with Monica and Michael's married life in the UK. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Catherine McDermott and it was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about this murder by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages discover subscription links for all our podcast platforms and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.